Today on Dramatic Impact, part two of an in-depth interview with the Canadian playwright Vern Thiessen. I try at every opportunity to be very, very true to the spirit of the historical facts that I'm dealing with and also giving the audience a lot of information about how I have gone away from that. But again, you go to the the masters. You go to Shakespeare, you go to Arthur Miller, and you don't go, ah, Arthur Miller, the crucible. Those witch trials didn't happen like that. You don't go, ah, yes, it's about the Salem witch trials. You go, well, that's not what the crucible's about. It's about something else. You don't look at the history plays of Shakespeare and go, ah, yes, Henry VI. That was really about Henry. You know, you go, Mm -hmm. he's trying to explore the things using the history. Welcome to Dramatic Impact, Episode 10. This is a continuation of the interview with Canadian playwright Vern Thiessen, so be sure to download and listen to Episode 9 before listening to this one. I've posted links to more information about Vern on the blog for Dramatic Impact, which is at www.actingandtheater.com, and that's theater spelled R-E. You can go to the site to listen to the episodes which are listed in reverse chronological order, to download them, or to subscribe to the show. And you can also find us in the iTunes store. I hope you enjoy the rest of the interview. I'm really intrigued by what I think is the beautiful dedication in The Courier and Other Plays. And that's a collection that includes The Courier, Valentine, Back to Berlin, and The Resurrection of John Frum. So just for the listeners, I'll just say what it says. For my mother, who taught me the joy of work. For my father, who taught me the joy of stories. For my sisters, who taught me that art is both of these things. So you've talked a bit about your parents, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your family and how they've inspired and influenced Sure. Oh, my parents are my heroes, you know. The things that they have had to overcome in coming from another country and uh, having survived the Stalinist purges and then having survived Nazi Germany and then having come over and raised a family and then allowed that family to become whoever they wanted to. So I have three older sisters. They're quite a lot older than I am. And one has worked for the federal government for her entire life. My other sister is a a nutritionist and also the head of the breast screening program in in Manitoba. And my other sister is a landscape architect in, in Regina. And they've all had like just completely, we've all had completely different lives. But all of my family has been so supportive of my work and my career and my choices, even when they were like shaking their heads at some of the stuff that I was doing over the years. But I worked for my mother for when I was a teenager. My father was a terrible worker. He hated work. He always came home and complained about work. He hated going to work. Hmm. And uh, what, what did he do? He was a welder and an assemblyman. He worked in the sheet metal business. And, uh, but he loved telling stories. And in fact, he's written some plays. You know, he, oh. Later on in life, he, he kind of would sit down and write a couple of plays. They were pretty good, actually. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, so he's always loved the theater. He loves going to the theater. He loves telling stories. He was always great at telling stories. And, but my mother was not like that. But she loved work. No matter what she was doing, no matter what awful job she had, she was great at work, and so one of the first jobs I had was working with my mother as a cleaning woman, and she would take me along and you know, tell me how 
to joyfully scrub a floor mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to find joy in the most menial awful tasks and you know whether it was to sing a song or think about what you were going to do or you know she was just great at that and my sisters were just people who have always enjoyed the work that they were doing and have always been great storytellers themselves and were just great role models for me whether it's in artistry or in business or in uh, taking care of one's family. They've just been real role models for me my entire life. I, I love them dearly and we get along extremely well. And what your mother taught you about taking joy in all kinds of work, do you think that's something that's unique in her? I mean, that she just had in her own personality or is it something you think she learned from a previous generation or where do you think that came from? Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know what she learned from her own sisters who worked pretty hard and my grandmother, but that's something that she may have gotten from even her father who was sadly in 1936 was was taken away by the by uh, the Stalinist forces and sent to a concentration camp and was never heard from again. So there's that kind of well there's loss for you. Right, So that's the kind of stuff that I think pervades my family. But there wasn't any kind of sentimentality about it. There wasn't any kind of feelings of, oh, woe is me. Mm-hmm. There was, that was horrible. Let's talk about it. We'll cry about it. And then we move on mm-hmm. and get on with our lives. So I don't, I don't know where that came from for her. Uh, you'd have to ask her. Okay. <laughs> We're to ask her next time I see her. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good idea. So I wondered if you could read again, this time from Blowfish, which is very different from um, Shakespeare's Will. Except they're both one-person shows. That's true. (laughs) And in this one, Lumiere is the main character who's a caterer who comes from a family of undertakers, right? His mother and father were undertakers. That's right. And it's his explanation to the audience of the difference between being a chef and a caterer. As I said, my name is Lumiere, and I am a caterer. I might remind you at this time that caterers are not chefs, although like chefs, we prepare a great deal of the meal. Unlike chefs, caterers do not indulge themselves in the food. We are rarely overweight. We don't wear tall hats. We do not taste the soup and say a little more salt. We rarely have fits of anger and never throw dishes at our serving staff as do chefs. We forego ego. Unlike chefs, my most important role is not to create the food, but to serve the food to you to make the most mundane hors d'oeuvre exciting and the most exotic seem irresistible, to ensure the napkin is properly folded, the soup spoon precisely placed, the room lovingly lit to match the desired atmosphere and mood. The smallest detail must be perfect. Timing is everything. For the caterer, food is only the medium. My calling is to create ceremony, to realize a ritual. A birthday party, for example, demands not only a cake, but the perfect cake that, along with specifically chosen candles and carefully selected liqueurs, creates an atmosphere of friendly fun, savory celebration, a yearning for youth, and acceptable indulgence. Wedding receptions require an illusion of intimacy, bouquets of benevolence, liberal lighting, sublime spirits, a miraculous meal, an atmosphere heavy with hope. Funerals? Well... Food is comforting, and after a long day of weeping and keening, eating a sandwich brings much-needed relief and nourishment to the grieving body. Whether the funeral is a somber service for a solitary stranger, or a spectacular soiree for a celebrated socialite, a few rudimentary rules are essential. Nothing gooey, nothing gaudy. 
Nothing bitter, nothing bony. Nothing too hard to chew, too hard to digest, too much like the human body, like human flesh, like... Well, you get my drift. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> that, that passage really, for me, kind of encapsulates the, the whole feeling of the play. <laughs> Just so the listeners have a clue about it if they haven't seen it or read it, I'll just say a bit about Blowfish. So as I said, Lumiere is a caterer who along with his assistants who who do appear in the play, but I guess in the productions that you've had so far, they've been silent. Is that right? No, that's not true actually, but uh, that's okay. How would you know this? I've seen a couple of productions now where the caterers, uh, the assistants have taken parts in the play and it it works either way. So it can be a one-person show or it cannot. It just depends on how the producer decides to do it. Okay, and then when they don't take the parts, then the actor playing Lumiere is the the one that plays the roles. And Lumiere literally serves the audience a meal, and he also has the audience bear witness to his own losses from boyhood into adulthood. And his gradual, and this is what I, this is my point of view, his gradual and brutal rejection of the worth of his own and others' lives. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And in the end, he commits suicide in front of the audience and asks them in a note, which they see him prepare during the course of the play and which is distributed to each member of the audience to bear witness to what they have seen. The last line in this note that the audience reads to themselves but it's kind of like, it's the end of the play, but it's something they read to themselves is, his body, soul, and history are survived by no one but you. And this implies to me that the audience is left with a kind of responsibility to remember Lumiere's story and by implication, how the story relates to their own lives. So in my opinion, Blowfish is a work in which you created a new form, or at least something that I've never <laughs> experienced before. I don't know what... Macabre dinner theater? <laughs> poisonous dinner theater. <laughs> dinner theater designed <laughs> to give you indigestion. I don't know. So I, I want to know where the inspiration for Blowfish came from and where did it start in your mind? Wow, I have to think back so long because I think I started writing that play in 93 or 94. And like any play, it begins with a number of influences coming to play at the same time and converging into something. And so with Blowfish, there's all kinds of things that I was always interested in, like funeral homes and there's twins in the play. My sisters are twins. There's a story that Lumiere tells about his mother taking him to a political rally, which is something that my mother did when I was very young. And, you know, those are just kind of personal things that end up kind of making their way and fictionalize in a play. But I think Blowfish, it really started to kind of take shape for me, if I remember correctly. I was living in Lloydminster. Mm-hmm. And I'd spent three years living in Lloydminster, Alberta, which... Um, that was right after you finished your MFA, wasn't That's it? right. Yeah. Uh, and I went out there to run the drama department in this uh, town of uh, 20,000 people, not even 17,000 people. And I'd never really lived in that kind of a small community before. It was a very rural community, and I, was, I spent three years there. And there was many wonderful, wonderful things about that town. But one of the things that I remember really bothered me was getting a good meal was extremely difficult. Hmm. So it was, you know, the, the restaurants there were not very good at the time. 
And so I think I was really obsessed with food and I was obsessed with getting good food. And so... Well, did food play a big role in your family? Oh, sure. It's a Mennonite yeah. family, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, it was like, and, I, and I'm a bit of a foodie, so I really like going out to eat. I like having dinner parties. I don't make very much food, but I love throwing parties in which usually other people make the food and, and I buy the wine. <laughs> but I, I like good food and I like eating good food. And so that was of interest to me. And I, and I think that combined with... The Oklahoma bombing, which was in the news at that time and which becomes part of the play, and terrorism and all of those things started to kind of wind up into a bit of a tornado of a play, which is a big metaphor in the play, is the idea of a tornado and um, the bringing together of all kinds of crazy ideas into one thing. Mm. I guess the reason I think it's a new form is because the audience is really implicated in the whole thing because they're watching the demise of this person, this person's soul kind of withering up in a way and so to the point where he's just willing to sit and watch while another human being chokes to death and where he assists his brother in suicide but not at his brother's request and, you know, things like this. Yeah, there's... Um, And then the audience is eating a meal during this so they're part of the play because he's talking, you know, he's serving them and he's he's implicating them. And so it just seems to me that they're being called on to, to think about their own humanity and whether it's withered in any way, and whether they've become, you know, whether they've lost any of their own humanity. Yeah, I would say, I'm not sure if it's a new form, but I'm glad that you said, if you want to promote that, I'm happy <laughs> that you will. But I, I often now look back on it as, a, it's, it's what I call my kind of horror play. It's yeah. It's gothic horror play. Yeah. It's very different from your other plays. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, part of that is because I was collaborating very much with Didi Kugler on the original production. We had very specific ideas about how we wanted to create an event. And it was the first time that I'd written, really written an event play which are very different to write than other kinds of plays. It's a very, very difficult play to produce, which is why it's you know only been produced three, four, five times. And that, that was, Didi Kugler was at, he was the artistic director at Northern, Northern Light. Light. Yeah, at the time. And along with Bretta Garricky, you know, it was a, a site-specific work that we created. We had to collaborate with, with caterers. And the idea of collaborating with people outside of the theater has become actually more and more important in my life and my work in the last 10 years. So, but it is, it's a bit of a horror play. And some people like it for that. Some people like going away and going, wow, that was interesting. And they read this thing and maybe have to contemplate their own responsibility. I think at the time that I was writing it, I was much more interested in, in Lumiere's attempt to fit in to a group. And I think one of the reoccurring themes in my plays is about people wanting to be part of something. Mm-hmm. wanting to be part of a group or in Einstein's gift wanting to Haber wants to be part of something important and this idea of wanting to be part of something important and not be a nothing mm-hmm. it's in the courier it's it's in a lot of the work mm-hmm. and that I don't know where that comes from but I know it's a reoccurring issue for me so it's almost in every single play and then there are people who hate blowfish because they you know and I had one person tell me they thought it was a fascist play because I am not allowing people, I am forcing people to have an experience that they may or may not want mm-hmm. and desire. So a lot of people get angry at the play. I and, can understand, yeah. And a lot would, of people yeah. love it. And, um, 
you know, it's it was never meant to be a mainstream kind of show, you know, and it's probably like uber poetic in in a way, like it's almost self consciously poetic, like Lumiere is like so ridiculously self-conscious about his choice of words that it becomes a little bit like a score for a production sometimes more than an actual play. It becomes a score for an event than it actually is a, a, a play that you could stage any old time. I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean, a score for an like, event? Um, Instead of a play where people could pick it up and go, okay, we're going to produce this next week at the Walterdale Theater or something like that. Yeah. Like, it, it demands direction and design oh. and outside forces in the same way that a musical score might, you know, demands all kinds of other players be involved in making turning that into a symphony. So it's not something that you can easily produce. I was interested in what you said about that you're increasingly involved with people outside of the theater. Could you just say a little more about that? Yeah, I'm finding it very interesting. And I have, since Blowfish and Einstein's Gift, even Apple to some degree, Vimy, all of those plays, and my the, these two new plays that I'm working on, I have been collaborating with people outside of the theater. So with Einstein's gift, I had to collaborate with a scientist in order to write some of yes. the work in there. Yes. In Apple, I had to do quite a lot of research on uh, breast cancer and uh, talk to a lot of people that were involved in that. And it goes beyond kind of research. It's when you start to kind of involve them even more greatly in the writing process. So Vimy, I was involved with military personnel. I had to involve people who spoke French to write some of the French passages in the play. I've been working with a lawyer recently on a play. I'm about to work with an embalmer on a new play. So I've been working with different people outside of the theater to kind of create the work. And I've also been starting to develop a company for each project so that the directors and the designers are, and sometimes the actors are in the process very, very early over the development of two or three years before we get it up on the stage. So. It's, I'm starting to develop plays in a different way than I did 10 years ago. Hmm. So obviously you've written many plays that are inspired by true stories from history, mm. notably Shakespeare's Will, Einstein's Gift, and Vimy. What is your reason as a playwright for wanting to explore historical events, or why do you think you're drawn to historical events for your subject matter? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I've always done that. It's the same thing with The Courier. My first play was really a kind of a history play. And almost all of the plays, except for Apple, really do involve some kind of historical facts. You know, Blowfish talks about the Oklahoma bombing, for, for example. And I have no idea why that is, but I think I often look to things outside of myself to go oh, how can I use that to tell the story that I want to tell? So it's not necessarily going, I want to tell the story of that history. Mm -hmm. It's rather, oh, there's a truth in that history that I'd like to explore, mm. and I'm using it as a way to explore something that I'm interested in. So with Einstein's Gift, it was about the nature of belief, and I was really interested about uh, Haber's journey of belief in that play that really struck me when I heard about that story uh, the, that was what carried me through writing it in six or seven years with Shakespeare's will 
it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to write a play about Anne Hathaway. I had no interest in writing a play about Anne Hathaway, and I don't really even think the play has all that much to do with Anne Hathaway because we don't know anything about Anne Hathaway, really. But it was just a nice... The five or six bits of information that we have about her was a great way to write a play about the contract of relationships. What is a relationship? How do we decide what a relationship is? When do we betray each other in a relationship? What is that betrayal? What, what happens when a single woman or a woman has to deal with children when the husband is away? What happens when we're dealing with the loss of a child? Those are the things that I'm really interested in. And the historical part is really just a hanger on which to place the coat of the play. Okay, so something that really goes into a lot of the historical detail, like, for example, Einstein's gift, could you just give us an idea of what the process is that you go through? It's long. (laughs) (laughs) It's a long process. How many years did you say? Uh, For Einstein's gift, it was, I don't know, six or or seven years from the beginning to the end. But that was for very many reasons it took that long. But yeah. I mean, I always say, oh, I hate writing history plays because... And Vimy was very, very difficult because that was a really hard story to nail down. Because you do, as soon as you do grab that hanger on which to hang your the coat of your play, you still have to make sure that the hanger is... That you're not bending it too much because then the coat falls off. Whoa, look at that metaphor going forward. <laughs> um, is that... Uh, and you, you know, I try at every opportunity to be very, very true to the spirit of the historical facts that I'm dealing with and also giving the audience a lot of information about how I have gone away from that. But again, you go to the the masters. You look at the masters and you see what they do. I often reread the masters. So you go to Shakespeare, you go to Arthur Miller, and you don't go, ah, Arthur Miller, the Crucible, wow. Those witch trials didn't happen like that. You don't go, ah, yes, it's about the Salem witch trials. You go, well, that's not what the crucible's about. It's about something else. Mm. You don't look at the history plays of Shakespeare and go, ah, yes, Henry VI. That was really about Henry. You know, you go, Mm. he's trying to explore other things using the history. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. But in those days, luckily for them, you know, both Miller and I'm sure that he did not get the emails that I get. (laughs) Dear Mr. Teeson, I recently saw your production of Vimy, and I just want to clarify a historical point about the Ross rifle and its use in the... You know, I get uh-huh. those emails all the time, right? Or my agent does now. And so I try as hard as possible to avoid the Dear Mr. Teeson letters mm. and to be as factually correct as I can. But never, never, ever will I sacrifice that to the good story. The good story has to take over. Mm, okay. Well, I think you just answered my next question. Which is? Because I had, I had a specific question about departing from historical fact. Because there was one thing when I was reading Einstein's gift where I kind of stopped and I was like, oh, why did he put that in? <laughs> um, what, what was it? That I'll was... probably dispute it. <laughs> okay. But, um, I mean, maybe it's true. I don't know. So once again... For anyone who doesn't know about the play, I just want to talk about Einstein's gift. So this is a play told from the point of view of Albert Einstein, who was a friend of the famous German chemist Fritz Haber. And um, Haber highly valued contributions to science that would make a concrete difference to his country, to Germany. And 
he really wanted to make this contribution, as you alluded to before. This is this theme of of really wanting to belong and really wanting totally. to make a difference and yeah. to, to stand out. So, And he went so far as to convert from Judaism to Christianity because Jews couldn't get very far in the, in the university hierarchy. At that um, time. At that time. And so that he could advance his career and his contributions. And I would say the play explores the irony of how his intense desire to make a contribution led to death and suffering of many. His career was full of contradictions. He invented a process for creating nitrogen fertilizer, which helped to ensure that the farmers could grow enough food to feed the growing population in Europe. But he also pushed the use of chlorine gas during World War I, and he had a position in the German War Department, I guess you would say. In fact, he created it. He created He's the that. grandfather of modern warfare. Right. And uh, biological so, warfare, sorry. Uh, yes. So people have differing feelings about him as a historical figure. So that's um, Einstein's gift. And the part that I wanted to know about is that it is in a certain scene during the World War I part of the play, Haber has a specific strategy for the use of chlorine gas, and it involves killing the enemy in their trenches with the gas, and then sending in reserve troops to advance into enemy lines to help the ones that have released, you know, been responsible for the release of the gas, that they would need those reserves to move forward. And the implication is... Um, well, there's a scene in, in which the general refuses to provide the re reserves because there's been an accident involving the gas in which some of their own troops have been killed. And that, I believe, is historically true, but I think it was fewer people that were killed than you say. But th anyway, that's not what I'm talking about. But the implication is that if Haber goes ahead with the attacks without the reserve troops, he won't be advancing the German cause, but will just be senselessly killing enemy troops. And then the general intimidates him into making that decision to do that. So I think that's something that you put in. I'm not sure, but... No, that's true. Oh, okay. Yeah. He had a huge disagreement with... Um... So it is a historical fact? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, with some bending a little bit, it was not the reserves as going in as much as it was. Boy, I'd have to go back and look at my research. Yeah, I'm kind of putting you on the spot. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it had to do with the amount of chlorine that was released. And remember, it was just one of those things that in workshop after workshop after workshop, you know, this is the problem with writing historical plays because if you try to explain one thing, then you have to explain everything. And so it was one of those things that after about four years of trying to explain why Haber was fighting with Daimlink over the release of the gas, the, the real reason, which was actually the amount of chlorine that was being oh, okay. released. It was just like, people were like, you could just see them like fading. <laughs> and it was like, you know what? I'm just going to alter this just a little bit because that's something that people understand. So again, staying true to the essence of the problem that he was facing mm -hmm. but you know maybe jimmying the the history or the facts just a little bit to allow an audience to really truly understand it without having to you know stop the play and having some scientists come out and tell us what this all means right okay well i think we're gonna have to uh wrap up but i did want to find out from you if there are upcoming opportunities for people to see your work 
that would depend on where they are. Are we talking about Alberta or Any, Edmonton? Anywhere, because oh. it's possible for people to be listening to this podcast from just about anywhere. anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think the best thing to do is to find out if is to go to my website, which is Vern Thiessen. Uh, it's V E R N T H I E S S E N dot com, dot com, and I try to list almost all the productions that are going on of my work. Uh, there are many. October 2008 coming up, Apple will be seen at the New Jersey Repertory Company in uh, Log Branch, New Jersey. It's also going to be playing in Los Angeles at Theater 40 next spring. It's also Apple is also running in Poland right now mm. in a, several productions. My kids play Bird Brain is playing in Toronto and Calgary this year. It's also opening two weeks in Oldenburg, Germany. And I think Einstein's Gift has several student productions that are going on across the country right now. So those are just a few of the productions that you'll probably see. And I'm very, very lucky because I sometimes actually lose track about what's going, where mm. the productions are happening. And, you know, I hope that continues for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I know this is just a brief trip for you visiting Edmonton. This is your home, but you're back here just for a couple of weeks from New York. Yeah, it is. I still consider it my home. I'm here doing a workshop at the Citadel of a stage version of Weathering Heights that I'm working on. And I've also co-developing a show with Epic Theatre Centre in New York and the Citadel called The More Perfect Union, which is a, a two-hander. It's a political comedy that I'm writing. And so the work goes on. Yeah. Well, it was a real pleasure to learn and more about you. Yeah. Thanks. That's all for this episode. Look for episode 11 the second week in October. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to Elaine at actingandtheater.com. And that's, again, theater spelled R-E. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about it. I'm Elaine Elrod. So long until next time.